Welcome to African American Conservatives, the soul of the conservative movement. I'm your host, Marie Strotter. Please remember to like, share, subscribe. Please go to brightnews.com or anchor.fm forward slash A-A-C-O-N-S. We're talking history today here at ACONS. Today's guest has written a number of historical tomes and uh, joins us today to discuss his latest. The history of this country is replete with examples of courageous young men and women who emblazoned the path to freedom and liberty. What's astounding about this, when you go back and study their lives, uh, for the most part, these people are relatively young, uh, at least by our standards. Very early 20s in most cases. That goes for the signers of the Declaration of Independence to people who were in battle, like the Alamo. So very young people making life-changing decisions uh, for the good of our nation. Mature decisions. But people aged the same today? I don't know that I could entrust my life to someone who refers to themselves as ghost self and can't handle the rigors of daily life. Daily life without battles being waged uh, as with the founding of this country. I mean, simple things like filling out paperwork without being triggered, working without melting down because you were asked to actually, well, work or go fund me-ing uh, everything because you need to heal from the trauma of everyday encounters. I live with survivors of real trauma. So these kids in these latest viral videos, one, a transgendered barista crying because the shift leader dared to schedule this person for eight and a half hours with a crew of four and actually asked that work be performed. Kel Domage, the horror. Had this person actually been to Starbucks before applying or known the uncaffeinated or undercaffeinated? Another viral story is about another trans student establishing a GoFundMe to be able to heal from the trauma of a non-Black person dancing to hip hop in front of them on campus who pushed back when the trans student called them out on it. So we've got young people and not so young people who don't have the emotional maturity or capacity to do basic tasks like work or go to school who comprise this upcoming generation. They'll be making decisions and voting. We're in for some real trouble. Brian Kilmeade is the co-host of the Fox News Channel's morning show, Fox and Friends, host of the Brian Kilmeade Show, and best-selling author. His latest book is The President and the Freedom Fighter, Abraham Lincoln, Frederick Douglass, and the battle, their battle to save America's soul, now available in paperback. He's been on the show a few times to promote his previous books. Welcome back to the show, Ryan. I appreciate you having me on. 
You are obviously a history buff, having written about Thomas Jefferson, Andrew Jackson, George Washington, and others. How do uh, certain historical figures and episodes catch your eye as an author, and why did the relationship between Lincoln and Douglas do so? Well, number one, I, I just think that uh, I want to move in time right after uh, Texas fights and wins their freedom from uh, from what we now know as Mexico. They get their freedom and think, what's the next big thing? Well, the Civil War is a big thing, the most written about war we have, and Lincoln's the most written about president. David Blight did a fantastic book on Frederick Douglass, and I thought to myself, well, how do I do this different? And I thought, what if I focused on their relationships since they kind of uh, sparred from afar and then came together at just the right time and they played such a valuable role. So I thought, what, why don't we try that? And after talking to some people, some historians said they thought it would be unplowed ground and I could do it. And what I always try to do is not write it from the perspective of, I, want, I hope somebody at Harvard buys it. I want the average everyday American, uh, American just say, you know what, I'm going to read this book. And if I really like one of these guys or another character in the book, I'm going to go follow up on that. So I want to help lay the foundation. That's great. Readers of The President and the Freedom Fighter might be impressed by the many parallels between Lincoln and Douglas. Both were tall. Both were erudite, even in their youths. Uh, both suffered the tragedy of losing a child. And both were blessed with strong maternal figures, namely Sarah Bush Lincoln and Sophia Ald. What can you tell us about uh, these women and how they influenced their young sons? Well, I mean, with uh, Frederick Douglass, never really knew his mom, and, uh, really raised by his grandmother, and then different, uh, I guess, masters' wives was the one that taught him to uh, read and write. And she did not know that that was not allowed back then, and she could have mm -hmm. got herself in trouble. Thank goodness. She later would shut him down, and that would be a life lesson to see somebody so warm change their mind because of uh, societal barriers. That was, uh, I imagine, that's jarring. Um, but I think Frederick Douglass deserves almost all the credit. I mean, he basically saw the people around him, saw what he could learn from all of them the best he could, and then would move on. If he could find some some redeeming quality in a person that would move his mission in life forward, he would do it, even if they were far from perfect people. And that describes who he is. And then he uh, was able to meet up uh, with his wife, who was a free woman of color, and then go to New York City and then make a life for himself there. Seems to have been a, a great parent, although it must have been away a lot. For Abraham Lincoln, his, his mom dies, I think, when he was eight years old. Dad goes out, leaves him and his sister all alone, comes, goes out and gets another woman, brings her back, ends up being somebody else who was a positive figure in Lincoln's life. And she was ended up having the same passion for learning, which is great because his father was always a waste of time. Reading books is a waste of time. You could be getting work done. So he was re really facing headwinds in order to be successful. Uh, everything about Lincoln and Douglas is they never should have amounted to anything. Lincoln actually obviously had it better than Frederick Douglass, who was born a slave. But, but Lincoln had it as bad as you can imagine, abject poverty. Dad basically rented him out to other people to work on their farm or to wrestle. Uh, he was working 12, 14 hours a day. And then he'd be working in a convenience store, saw what he can do. And then he said, yes, I want more in life. Became a lawyer, uh, a politician. And you read some of his writings. And I read all of his speeches. Definitely a humble guy. And Frederick Douglass knew he had to be extremely confident to do what he did. 
And by traveling the world and giving speeches and meeting with people and reading everything he could, he became one of the smartest men in America. Yeah. Yeah. Now, to uh, touch on something that you mentioned, you described Lincoln in his childhood as, quote unquote, essentially an indentured servant, being forced to work and to hand over his wages to his father and receiving frequent beatings. Uh, do you think this experience was the root of his antipathy towards slavery? Well, I think it was a lot. Do I understand it? Three percent of the black population was in the north. A lot of them, especially, it's hard to believe for us, but back then, news wasn't traveling. Yeah. So, like, for, for Lincoln to get on stage with William Lloyd Garrison uh, in the audience and start giving a speech and talking about life as a slave, by almost all reports, people were just enraptured by it. They couldn't believe the horrors of it. They couldn't believe he survived it. They took off his shirt and they see the marks. And uh, it became so real and so many abolitions were created after the reality was brought home. The way I understand it, Lincoln didn't encounter uh, too much to slavery too often. He visited a friend, saw a slave trade, must seen an auction, went down the Mississippi, got a chance to see the South. So he experienced it, but he was in and he was out. And I think what Lincoln sees is he always said to himself, you know, what is going on with slavery? Like, why, why is this even allowed to exist? But he never thought early on that blacks and whites are equal, but he thought everybody should be free. And in my mind, he absolutely evolved on that, much like. Benjamin Franklin, one of the smartest men to ever walk the planet. You know, he was somebody who had slaves, became to understand that if you give people education, there's no difference. Color of the skin didn't matter. Uh, and he became a leading abolitionist. And I'd like to think that Lincoln was heading the same direction, especially as I chronicle in the book and it's been depicted in movies. As the Emancipation Proclamation takes root, it becomes clear that the blacks were willing to fight gallantly for their freedom and carry guns and for themselves uh, brilliantly in the battlefield, it became clear that the person responsible most was Abraham Lincoln, and he was worshipped by the black community. In fact, when it first comes clear that Jefferson Davis had left, he said, I'm going to Richmond, grabbed his son, and wanted to see the White House that Jefferson Davis had set up. And as he lands, uh, African-Americans look around and they notice who he is, and they basically just want to congratulate him and thank him, and they're all in tears. And he begins to realize the magnitude, I think, in what he did and what he accomplished and how bad slavery was gradually as it became more and more real to him. So I think you look at somebody in their lifetime evolving on it. And I think by the end, when you see the way he greets Frederick Douglass at the inaugural, second inaugural, uh, when you see the way uh, Douglass came back at him, you knew that if Douglass was dealing with a racist, he would have made it clear in all of his books, but he wasn't. He was dealing, dealing with a man who was of his times. Right. Now, throughout the president and the freedom fighter, it's evident that Douglas looked at Lincoln with a bit of a side eye, uh, much like how a contemporary pro-lifer might look at one of the politicians who say, I'm personally against abortion, but I support uh, Roe v. Wade. Um, describe for us how frustrated Douglas had become by Lincoln's hesitancy to embrace the abolitionist movement. I think very frustrated. And I think the fundamental reason is this. You know, you have friends in your life that you expect a lot from. And when they let you down, it's crushing and you give them very little leverage because you know what they're capable of. However, there's other people who are acquaintances. It will do something even ruder or it's even more cavalier or possibly hurtful. And you're like, well, you know, I don't, you know, whatever, just keep that in mind. Never be great friends with that person. But when you have see somebody who has great potential, 
whether it's the boss you have or somebody you're mentoring or somebody in your family, and they let you down and are not producing the way you want, you're twice, if not four times as angry. And he's reading about Lincoln. He's understanding who Lincoln is through the Doug Lincoln, Douglas, Stephen Douglas debates. He's reading the text, sometimes appearing in the audience. And he goes, this guy's special. This guy's got it. And when he wins, he shelves his plans to go to Haiti. And he's expecting him to win and declare Emancipation Proclamation, let everybody be free, grab guns, grab uniforms. But with Douglas thought, and when Lincoln knew, and when Douglas was surprised at that, Lincoln knew the North wasn't there. Although they didn't have slaves and they don't believe in slavery, they didn't believe in equality. And they weren't going to go for, let's get them all uniforms, let them fight together, pay them equally, and let's free them all up. So he had to deal with the country he had, not the one that Doug, that he wanted or that Douglas wanted. So he had to wait. And two years in, it was the right time. Uh, they realized they needed him to win. They needed that it was necessary. They saw the evils of slavery. Hundreds of thousands are dead. Let's end this thing. Let's let these people fight for their freedom, African-Americans at the time. And let's go in. Let's go do this. And they did. And I think that Douglas became so impressed with Lincoln. He became one of his chief recruiters and he might, you know, was working his way towards being an officer, but Stanton never followed in on his offer, but his sons joined the army. So I think in the end, they were in a pretty good place together. And then that famous speech when he dedicated the monument, the emancipation monument, he basically said, if he went as fast as I wanted him to, he probably wouldn't have had a country, but by the pace of the country, by the pace in which the country was at, you know, he was swift, direct, and right on time. So I think there's a difference between being the editor of a newspaper to being a speaker and an activist and a deep thinker and somebody who's in charge of a country. So you could study at a war college, but how many, how many generals can lead you to war? So you really need that practical experience. And Lincoln had to deal with the, the country that was not there yet in the beginning of the war, but they were, for the most part, you know, by the middle and end. I want to touch on something that you said there. Um, why did Douglas oppose the hope that Lincoln and many other anti-slavery whites had before the war that freed blacks, uh, that blacks be shipped to places like Haiti and Liberia? Um, I, you were interrupted there. Were you saying colonization, that whole idea of colonization? Mm-hmm. So it's a terrible idea, uh, obviously. Uh, at the time, there's a few different angles to it. I wouldn't know unless Lincoln was around. One of the uh, one of the things that people thought, I mean, Lincoln looked around and said, listen, these blacks and whites are never going to get along. This is terrible. How do I get out of this? What do we do? Well, we shouldn't have had slavery to begin with. Absolutely. So what do we do? Well, let's see if they want to go back. You know, they came here against their will. Maybe their will is to get out. So he invites some African-American leaders to the White House and he says, listen, how do you feel about that? I'll give you some money, set you up with some housing. We'll provide the military to transport you. But do you, your friends and family want to go back to where you came from, where you were grabbed six, uh, 150 years ago? And for the most part, every uh, African-American that was confronted said, are you kidding me? We're Americans. We're staying. We're going to fix this country. We're not leaving this country. And they were insulted by it. Now, do you notice he didn't ask Douglas to go? And he knew that Douglas was the number one African-American in the country, known around the world, known in Ireland, England, Scotland, speaking all over Europe, uh, everyone worshiped Douglas. So why wasn't he invited? There's a theory there, and I think it's solid. Lincoln had to show the country 
I tried everything. And the way we have to learn to live with each other. But until he tried everything and showed it, he couldn't just say it. So Lincoln took the slings and arrows of this idea that maybe some were in support of, but the black community wasn't. And even though some did take the offer, uh, it was horrible. It was a, a nightmare, a bad idea, which uh, ended up even worse than the idea itself. But what it showed white America at the time, they said, listen, you understand, this is your country. Get used to it. We've got to learn to live together. That's another strong theory by Lincoln biographers is why Frederick Douglass wasn't invited to that pitch and why the press was. Think about this. The press was invited for the pitch in the White House for these African-American leaders to hear how much money they'd get, what kind of housing, what kind of demands would they need to leave the country. So if you were doing something so controversial, why are you bringing the press? Because you wanted word to get out that this Lincoln is trying everything to bring peace back to America, including righting a wrong, which is taking people against their will to the country to work as a slave. So that's a theory that a lot of Lincoln biographers have. But obviously, in life, there are people who have ideas. They end up good. They end up bad. That was a horrendous one. Well, given that, Brian, why are we, you know, 150 years later or so still talking about reparations? I, I, I don't know. I mean, that's relatively new to me besides studying the history books, something that's happened over the last 15 years that people are talking about that. And uh, there's no doubt about it. When you look back at segregation and separate but equal and the transition and the problems with uh, the voting and threats to keep it away from the ballot, all bad. But as we look through history, there's a lot of good, a lot of great people stepped up to do great things. Booker T. Washington, Frederick Douglass, uh, there's a lot of great white people, William Lloyd Garrison and Garrett Smith. They did great things along the way. So they should be heralded and along the way they're villains. And there's other people that are just victims of their times. They were born and they grew up and they said, those people work for free and these people don't and they're better than you. And that's what you learn at two, four, six, eight, ten. And then all of a sudden you look around and you hope to go, wait a second, isn't this wrong? Like every 18 year old is looking at America now today and say, isn't this all wrong? I remember there was a dialogue between, not to get too on a tangent, and I was, when I was studying for this book, I remember this dialogue, and I, I wish I pulled it out. And everything I read, I didn't. But essentially, to paraphrase, it was this. Douglas was friends with a lot of white kids, and they didn't see any difference. They treated each other equally. And they talked to each other, and they said, you know, we're just going to have to wait for the next generation to understand there's no difference uh, in with people with the color of their skin. And think about that. Here they are probably in the 1840s, two 12-year-olds, 13-year-olds, looking at each other going, there's no difference between us. Yeah. Now, they've evolved, but that 72-year-old or the 68-year-old, let's say, or whatever the 62 is old then, they they grew up in that environment. Like, like Jefferson yeah. knew it was wrong, but he didn't create it. As smart as he was, he didn't shake it. You know, they knew they wanted to set us up to phase it out. That was their goal, because to stop it on a dime back then, the best I can ascertain, I didn't live then, was going to be economically impossible and, and impossible to convert people. But they fundamentally knew it was wrong to do that to another human being. But all you do in 2022 is say, don't think 2022. And we know how wrong it is. Think about 1712 and think that this was existing in every continent and think that Indians had slaves. Uh, I can't do the definitive history of Africa, but I heard African tribes had slaves of other tribes. You yes. might, you probably know more than me. So we are the hardest on ourselves. If you're born here and you look back at my great, great, great grandfather and mother was a slave, we're sold. I understand the anger, 
but don't blame me because I, I'm just as horrified as you are. That's but right. I don't hate the country. I see the process that we went through to get where we are today. And I still say the most successful multicultural country in the history of the world that people are still trying to break into while we speak. That's absolutely right. And I and and to your point, that's one of the issues I think that I find most disturbing is, you know, people talk about this country and yet we have uh, the 13th, 14th, 15th amendments. We have a country who has uh, leveled the playing field. Um, we were talking just recently on the podcast about how there are no barriers to anyone being admitted into a university anymore because of the color of their skin or because they may have a disability or because of their gender. Uh, so, you know, uh, it, it's hard to understand right. uh, some of the rhetoric that we're hearing. And I almost think when you see the struggles that Douglas had and Booker T. Washington went through and what the, they, how they innovated and changed perceptions of generations, it's almost an insult of what they accomplished and how they moved us forward to go back with anger and, and condemn a country that has so many heroes along the way to make sure that we evolve to the point we're at right now. Now, I think people are going to look back at 2022 at 50 years, 100 years. Who knows, maybe 10 and say, what were you people thinking? How could you even assume that these things that we take as natural, they're going to, how, how it's horrifying, horrifying that you would even accept that. What, you know, why was that okay? And we're going to look around and go, well, it was okay. Then in 2022, it was totally natural. Everyone did it. Everyone was used to it. We all dressed this way. We all acted this way. That's the way we did it. But guess what? In 2060, they'll be more evolved than we are now. 2070, 2080. Right. But I don't want them to condemn 2022. And I don't think they'd want us to condemn 1850 or 1960. I think when you come in, we analyze, we're horrified. When we see black and white water fountains. We see the bus, as I did at the Ford Museum, where Rosa Parks was told to get to the back of the bus. And she wouldn't. That bus is in a museum. Why? Because we're proud that there was somebody named Rosa Parks who was an American that stood up to change things that we knew we know now. And she knew then was wrong. And she did. But I don't think she hated the country. Douglas never hated the country. He began to understand that William Goyd Garrison had it wrong. The Constitution didn't have to be ripped up. He began to understand that Garrett Smith had it right, that we have to live up to our Constitution uh, and start living up to the ideals that were written. And if we didn't like it, we can amend it. It's built into it. And we did. 13, 14, 15. So that's how I feel. I don't pretend to know it all, but I think that people need a humility. Like I just said, I don't know it all. And I'm not smart enough to condemn everybody who lived before me. And I don't want to take the slings and arrows who people want to judge it, judge me after because we're all subjected to the era in which we live. And we should just salute great people like Douglas and Lincoln for who they were and where they came from. They came from nowhere. No other country would you be able to rise from nowhere, literally a slave, to one of the most respected men in the free world. And we know Lincoln is still looked at as the greatest president we ever had. That's right. Now, you described John Brown's attempt to recruit Douglas to assist him in his famous raid on Harper's Ferry. What role did Brown have for Douglas? And would the outcome of the raid have been different if Douglas had agreed to help? I think it was, a, by personally, my opinion, it's a suicide mission. Uh, idealistic to think they could pull it off. 
what he wanted to do is use Douglas's name and fame to uh, to rally the uh, the slaves in the South to rise up against their masters and fight for freedom, report to the garrison, get some arms and uh, and take a portion of the country, perhaps. And Douglas said, well, I appreciate the sentiment. I'll take a pass. Thank you. But all his paperwork was everywhere and the meetings were prevalent. And, you know, Uncle uh, John Brown was an uncle to his kids. He was over so much. So you can't pretend there was no link. But Douglas didn't think the South was ready. And he was and to me, he was right. Now, you mentioned Lincoln inviting Douglas to the White House to discuss, quote unquote, the Grapevine Telegraph. Uh, Why was this meeting the origin of their friendship? Well, Douglas got online and you could get online back then and go see the president. Not sure he'll see you, but even though they're in the middle of a war, think about this. No fence around the White House, line up to see him. No one, no security, maybe one person. Maybe that's why John Wilkes Booth was successful, by the way. Yeah. But as soon as Douglas got online, word went out, they passed the word, you know, that he's there. He walked right past sitting senators. They ushered him right in. And that's when the two engaged almost immediately. Frederick Douglass, great to see you. And Mr. President, thanks for seeing me. He described seeing the president so long and so big for the chair, he sprawled, his legs went into two rooms. And they just got into it. Why did you do this? Why did you do that? What about what of the slaves? What's your timing? Let me show you the paperwork I had. I know you've been, uh, you condemning me in various works about X, Y, and Z. And they hit it off to the point where, they were supposed to meet again, and then uh, Douglas had a previous engagement, and they met, and they talked about how they were going to form their own John Brown insurrection and rally the African-Americans to rise up against uh, the Confederate Army and to rise up against their masters and let them know a way out. And just as they were devising this, uh, Grant went to town and started having huge success, and they said the first thing I got to do is get reelected because whoever has president right now, is, uh, I'm pretty much the only one that was going to hang in there and win this war. And Douglas said, all right, I'm going to help you get reelected. Let's let me go to work for it. Let's let's come up with a strategy. And they worked on that. They worked on the insurrection. They worked on equal pay for African-Americans. They worked on uh, officer opportunities for um, for the for all the uh, infantries they were setting up, all the black infantries they were setting up. So they immediately just hit it off. And they had so much to cover. And I always say this, that if he was allowed, if Lincoln was allowed to finish the 1860s between Grant, which we now know, we didn't know how special a person he was for years. And from what we know of Douglas, can you imagine those three flooding the South with teachers and housing and helping with the transition using the army to, to provide security? And I believe that even though there would have been hiccups regardless and some version of the KKK, uh, and people intimidated at the voting booth for a while. I think for the most part, if, if Lincoln was allowed to survive the 1860s and fill out his term and maybe a third, I don't think we would need the 1960s. Yeah. Yeah. Now, as I alluded to in my monologue, history is replete with stories of young men and young women who have made a difference in this country, many in their uh, mid, early to mid-20s. Um, I think of our mutual friend, Alan West, who reads uh, the letter from William Barrett Travis. Um, But today, people in the same demographic are rushing to safe spaces triggered by work, math, milk. Yeah, I blogged about that one. Milk. 
What has changed to put our youth on that trajectory and how do we change it back? I, I, you know, this is a good question. They say it comes from schools. I mean, I'm seeing it with people that I know, young people that are just militant. Uh, you're, just, if you're a white person, you're privileged and you should, um, you know, get out of the way. Uh, socialist tendencies, you should give up what you have because obviously you got it by cheating for it and no blacks could ever be successful. No minorities will ever thrive. Um, we, are, we are a country born on stolen land. Uh, which was fueled by slavery. Really? Thanks for that. We usually our enemies would say that about us. Now we're saying it about ourselves. I imagine it's come from the schools and I hope people are alerted to it. And if we could find a way to have the money that's afforded, let's say a public school for me would have been back then maybe $5,000. Well, instead of giving, putting me in public school, give me that 5,000 voucher and let me go somewhere else because if they're going to teach that, you're going to lose a lot of students. And that's the only thing that would change the curriculum. When these public school classrooms are half full and the t- there's no teaching jobs to be made, these unions wouldn't have a leg to stand on and they'll have to change. That's what I, that's what I hope. Uh, you know, um, we see this uh, rush to erase history. Again, you know, I'm triggered. Everything triggers me. And, and this push to resegregate ourselves. Why are we so uncomfortable to have difficult conversations um, about the history of this country? And what can we do to reverse it? Well, I'm trying. I mean, I just want to tell true stories, build them around the, for the quotes of the people, um, make sure there's tons of footnotes and let people know this is your history. This is how special these guys were. I mean, here's how, uh, and women, and, and here's how flawed they were. You know, I'm right, Sam Houston, the Alamo Avengers, right before the president of Freedom Fighter. And what I did in President Freedom Fighter, I talked about what you just mentioned, Marie, and that is what's happening in the news around this story. What's happening in the news since it published is they ripped Frederick Douglass's statue out of the yes. ground, two of them in Rochester. So that's in the afterwards, which you're going to find in this book. And the Tuskegee Airmen. It's yeah. crazy. Yeah. It's, you should be making extra monuments, uh, not taking them yeah. away. What is the mission? And then they did, they're trying to take Lincoln off of grammar school. And the monument that was dedicated, I don't love the design. Frederick Douglass didn't love the design, but it was paid for by this Freedom Monument shows an African-American based on a real person yes. standing up, breaking off chains and yes. Lincoln standing over them. And they thought like, a lot of people in the black community and the white community said, you know, it's not a great image. I mean, whose idea was this? Can I tell you whose idea it was? It was freed slaves yes. who, who paid for this. Maximum contribution was $5. And one hired Thomas Ball, who happened to be located in Italy at the time, to make a design, uh, a sculpture that would talk about this great moment 10 years after his death by this great president. So Douglas looked at it and said, yeah, don't love this, but I've dedicated. I understand where they're coming from, and it does show a black man rising. So I understand the symbolism. But then when things start going George Floyd crazy, they start coming for this monument. And I believe if it wasn't for the great, great, great grandson of Frederick Douglass to say, leave it. Yeah. Uh, and I suggest that you put another statue of Douglass maybe reading his famous speech that he gave that day in the park, Lincoln Park. Why wouldn't that make more sense? They haven't done that yet, but I'm big into that. So you want to put context around Jefferson, put a plaque there. And if not, why don't you put other great moments around Jefferson statue? So I look down and I say, OK, that statue is built in 1820. Man, that looks good. Or that looks beat up. Instead of, I have everything in my past from imperfect people. They're all taken down 
So I, I, we become a nation of pedestals. So instead of going to Jefferson and learning what the people back then thought of him and then seeing the plaque of the negativity, maybe you talk about the the, the slaves that he had, the relationships that he that he uh, that he had. Maybe you talk about it. maybe that's there. He also had 126 slaves, whatever it was. You want to put that there? Absolutely. But don't take the past down. That's right, because we have to learn from it. I, I mean, thought, that, that's the whole point. But but look what you can learn from Jefferson. That's I mean, right. I never stopped reading and learning, inventing every day. He set up a little uh, hammock situation in between his living room and desk so he wouldn't have so he could sleep quickly and get back to work. Every day he was in the middle of five books. He just felt like there was so much to learn and to know. And this guy used all of that intellect, that brain power to help form our country. And because he had slaves, I'm supposed to take down his statues and stop reading his books. Don't think so. Yeah. That's right. If you're just joining us, our guest today has been Brian Kilmeade. His latest book is The President and the Freedom Fighter, Abraham Lincoln, Frederick Douglass, and their battle to save America's soul. Brian, how do we continue to follow your work? Uh, if you just go to briankilmeade.com, I'm going to be have a book tour. I'm going to be in, uh, I'll be in Scranton. I'll be in Myrtle Beach. I'll be in Hollywood, Florida. Um, I'll be in Brandon, Mississippi, doing talking about all my books on stage. If anyone's around there, I hope to see you. There's still some tickets left and VIP opportunities I could talk to you before the show. And I'll be right the next day in Tulsa, Oklahoma, then signing books in Oklahoma City. Uh, I'll also be in St. Louis. And I believe out McCallum, Texas. We have a great uh, radio affiliate there. So I'll just be able to talk about this book again, but also add context, which I added to the book. So additional information. Excellent. Thank you so much for being our guest today. And I hope you'll come back and talk about the next book. Yeah. Thanks for reading, uh, reading in the great questions, Marie. Thank you. Thank you. And uh, do you need to download this? You okay? I think we're good. Okay. Thank you. Thanks. And there you have it. Brian Kilmeade. So let's see what DK thought about that. DK, come on in. Hola. Hola. What did you think? (laughs) I thought it was a great book. He made a lot of interesting points. Uh, One point I wanted to mention was that I think he was right about Lincoln, that if Lincoln uh, had come into office as the great emancipator that he became, that he probably would not have come to office. I don't think the country was ready for a Republican Republican politician to declare on first day of the job that he was going to free the slaves. Um, I don't don't know if even the North would have accepted that at the time. So we were, we're blessed that he Lincoln involved at the pace he did. And I want to touch upon your monologue about how men and women of the past became great at a very early age. And I was talking about Frederick Douglass. He's a guy who was born a slave, spent the first two decades of his life as a slave and did not even know the alphabet until he was uh, 12 years old. That's crazy to think about, isn't it? Yeah, it's amazing how much how quickly he, he evolved because by the time he was 20, he had just escaped slavery. And within a few years, this guy who had only just begun to learn how to read, he, he was known as a great um, abolitionist writer and a lecturer. Yeah. And he did a lot of great things. I, I noted a few. Um, 
He was well-respected by William Lloyd Garrison and John Brown, who were the two leading white abolitionists of the time. He was a, he was a friend and encourager of Harriet Tubman, spoke very highly of Harriet. I think he's the one who gave Harriet Tubman the nickname, the general. And, and like uh, Brian Kilmeade mentioned that by Lincoln's second inaugural, that Lincoln had pulled Frederick Douglass to the side and said, there is no man in the country whose opinion I value more than yours. And he continued his push for justice even after emancipation as he became, for example, one of the leading spokespersons for uh, women's suffrage. So he was always pushing for justice. He was always pushing to reform the country in a, in a positive direction. And his quote for that was, where justice is denied, where poverty is enforced, where ignorance prevails, and where any one class is made to feel that society is an organized conspiracy to oppress, rob, and degrade them, neither persons nor property will be safe. So I think it's important for us to continue to recognize men like him, uh, especially in the Black community. You know, the Frederick Douglass, the Booker T. Washingtons, the Harriet Tubmans, the, even somebody, our contemporaries like Clarence Thomas. We have a tendency, Martin Luther King, we hear denigrated by certain uh, friends of ours who suddenly think it's cool to speak very poorly of Martin Luther King. We should appreciate these men and women more because they built they built us up so much, and to tear them down, we're only debasing ourselves. You know, one of the points that Brian Kilmeade made that I think is so crucial, um, and it gives context to all of the things that we're talking about now in in 2022, and that is to put what happened in the context of its time. You know, we look back and we say, well, how come they didn't do this? And da, 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 da. And, you know, to have some of these conversations back then, and as you said, you know, for Lincoln to come in and say, hey, I'm going to free the slaves, you know, all of these things, these people lived in the times that they lived in. And we see great things from them. We see that they accomplish great things. But, you know, people had to evolve. And we don't give them the grace to be able to do that. And the um, political mechanism, I think, to do that. You can't just come in. I mean, maybe we saw Donald Trump do a little bit of that because he, he, I think, you know, they talked about Barack Obama fundamentally changing America. I think... Uh, Donald Trump did with the policies in four short years, the money that he gave to the HBCUs. Those kinds of things are things, instead of this push for reparations, I think money to HBCUs and all of these kinds of things actually move that needle more so than some of these other things that, that people are, are proposing. But yeah, looking at history through the lens of history at that time, not where we are now, not knowing what we know now, but at that time, some of these things were pretty groundbreaking. Yeah, well, I think it's important to appreciate their evolution, but we should also recognize that evolution is not always a great thing. Um, I remember uh, our prior guest, Robert George, he used to write about how we are evolving to a society where 
marriage is being devalued or yeah. uh, maybe, uh, what's the word, polyamorous marriages are becoming more involved. And yeah. We, Kill Me made a point that maybe in 2040, we'll look back on 2020 and be disgusted by some of our values. I'm, I'm not quite comfortable with that. You know, I, I don't know what values we're supposed to involved into necessarily. Are we supposed to be more, are we going to evolve to be a more pro-life society or a more pro-choice society and so forth? So I think our predecessors have evolved in remarkable ways sometimes in the period of, of, of years when Lincoln did. The Lincoln who was sworn in at the beginning of his first inaugural was completely different from on certain issues than the Lincoln who was sworn in at the beginning of his second inaugural. You know, he, he spoke with people like Frederick Douglass and other abolitionists. He he survived the war. His wife became an abolitionist. He he paid a price, a pretty heavy price, but he he did become uh, a much better man. And we've seen other great men do that from Ben Franklin, as Kilby mentioned. There was uh, Calvin Coolidge, one of my favorite presidents. His his views on civil rights were not quite the same. And Calvin Coolidge is another example. So, so there it is. You know, to your point, I think, um, as you said, evolution is good, but maybe regression is good, too. I would never want to go back to the days of slavery, obviously. But maybe, as I alluded to in my monologue, when, um, to quote, uh, someone who is not really known for his tact, Archie Bunker, when men were men. Uh, but, you know, uh, just going back to the foundation of this country and um, thinking about the ages of, of some of these people, um, I, I, I do become quite concerned in 2060, should the Lord allow us to see it, um, kind of what our world will look like looking back at 2020 when this was the the standard of, I mean, that we said that masculinity was toxic. So people like William Travis, uh, William Barrett Travis and, and others who forged the, the path of this country um, would not have been allowed to rise because that masculinity is toxic. Yeah, you could not imagine. I think someone of my father's generation could not imagine an 18 year old crying over eight eight hour shift, you know, you hourly employ you, you want eight hour shifts, you want sixteen hour shifts because you get paid by the hour. So and in some ways we're evolving, other ways we may be devolving. So, you know, hopefully we'll we'll get on the right path and maintain that. So there you have it. We are wrapping up this episode of African American Conservatives, the soul of the conservative movement. I'm Marie Strotter saying please sign up at brightnews.com or anchor.fm forward slash A-A-C-O-N-S. And we'll see you next time.